Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm one of your hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Rania. Today, we have a great guest for you guys. We've got Steven Donziger. He's a human rights lawyer who you may have heard of because he's been on house arrest for the last uh, two years. Uh, after being persecuted by the biggest, one of the biggest oil companies in the world, Chevron, in collusion with uh, local authorities after winning a massive case against Chevron for intentionally polluting an indigenous community in Ecuador, in the Amazon. Um, Stephen has been dealing with this case, obviously, for years now, but recently a federal judge ruled that he was guilty of criminal contempt of court. Um, and now Stephen is requesting a new trial. So we're going to get into all the details of this. But first, Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I guess, you know, for a lot of people who might not know the details of your case, before we get into the more recent stuff, especially with the fact that you uh, will now be uh, asked or you are requesting a new trial. Can you start by giving people some background very briefly? You know, what what have you been dealing with the, for the past couple of years and why have you been under house arrest? Yeah, so I uh, was part of a legal team that represented indigenous groups in Ecuador and the Amazon that won a, you know, an historic pollution judgment against Chevron in 2013. Um, and the reason I'm in house arrest is because Chevron uh, came back to the United States after they had accepted jurisdiction in Ecuador and after they'd lost the case. And by the way, our, our legal victory had been was affirmed by six different appellate courts in Ecuador and Canada, including the Supreme Courts of both countries. Um, Chevron couldn't handle it. And they decided to try to attack me, demonize me and go after the lawyers. Um, as opposed to paying the people they poison in compliance with various court judgments. So um, they came back here and, you know, to make a long story short, they demanded that a U.S. federal judge order me to turn over my computer and cell phone to them, which is unheard of. I mean, it's all protected information on, on these devices, attorney client privileged information and attorney work product. Um, no one's ever heard of such an order being issued in the U.S. Um, rather than comply, I appealed the order to a higher court. Um, and while I was appealing the order, the trial judge, Judge Louis A. Kaplan, who, by the way, is a former tobacco industry defense lawyer, charged me with criminal contempt of court for appealing an order that was obviously unlawful. Um, and he had me locked up in my house. Um, in an effort to get me to turn over my devices to Chevron, which, among other problems, would have put the lives of my clients in Ecuador in jeopardy because all their names are in there and Chevron has a history or their agents do of harassing, attacking and even uh, issuing death threats against the, the people of Ecuador who challenge them. So I've been on house arrest now two years. Now, the crazy part is... When a judge charges someone with criminal contempt in the United States, they're obligated to take the charges to the prosecutor for them to prosecute. In this case, the prosecutor looked at the charges, determined they were baseless, and decided not to prosecute. Rather than stop there, the judge, Judge Kaplan, appointed a private law firm to prosecute me. 
he hid the fact that the particular law firm, Seward and Kissel, based in Manhattan, had Chevron as a client. He hid that. We found that out seven months later after the, you know, this private prosecutor, Rita Glavin, had asked for me to be locked up. Now, there's never been a lawyer locked up on a misdemeanor in the history of the United States of America other than me for even one day. Today is my 729th day. Friday, Oof. two days from now, will be two years. The longest sentence ever imposed on a lawyer convicted of this supposed crime, and again, I assert my total innocence, is 90 days of home confinement. I've already been in my home eight times that amount, and I'm innocent. So this is very unusual. It's bizarre. I would assert that it's actually corrupt. And what's essentially happened is for the first time in U.S. history, a corporation, in this case Chevron, big oil company, has taken over the public function of prosecuting a critic and depriving him of his liberty. It's a whole new world in the United States of America, my friends, because, you know, the country that people around the world who get attacked by these oil companies or by governments unjustly, who have their human rights violated, you know, many of them always look to the United States courts as a, at least a bastion of the rule of law or the United States government as a place they could go maybe to get support. But now this is this method of lawfare of companies using the law, weaponizing the law to attack its critics um, alongside their judicial allies is happening in this country. And it's not just my case. There's other cases as well. My case is the most extreme example. Um, but it's very terrifying, and frankly, it affects every advocate in this country and beyond. People need to pay serious attention to this. And I'd like you to discuss the next step you're taking to request a new trial and, and, and what exactly the grounds are. I know it involves the, the Justice Department not being involved in your case, but what happens now, you know, typically in criminal cases, there's a sentencing, but how, how, do you, how does sentencing come into play here uh, in, in, in your case? Just knowing what we know about what's extraordinary so far, I mean, is sentencing going to be different from the typical cases? Because so far we've seen things that amount to due process violations. So I'd imagine that sentencing uh, could have those same abuses as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm concerned on a number of levels. I mean, first of all, let me say a trial happened in May that wasn't really a trial. It was an attempt by Judge Preska, who was appointed by Judge Kaplan. Judge Preska also, by the way, is a member of the Federalist Society that Chevron funds. She's hopelessly conflicted, would not recuse herself. There was a trial where she denied me a jury. My Chevron prosecutor put up the so-called evidence. Presco wouldn't let me testify on my own behalf to explain why I did what I did, the many ethical and legal reasons why I did what I did. And it was just a, an attempt at a show trial. It didn't work. Everyone watching it saw what a joke it was. She was. The judge was reading the newspaper during the trial. But we did accomplish one thing during that process is we got through it. And ultimately, she you know, convicted me as we fully expected, even though, again, we believe the facts don't support any kind of conviction. But the best part is we're now going to appeal it. And there's so many problems with how they've been doing this that we have a fair amount of confidence that we will prevail on appeal and this conviction will be thrown out. 
But let's just say that happens. It'll take a year, year and a half to finish the appeal. I've already been in house arrest two years. During the appeal, she'll probably keep me in house arrest, even if she sentences me to prison. Um, she'll suspend that and say, you can just stay home. We'll see how your appeal goes. That'll add another year or two. So it's possible before the appellate decision comes down, I will have served three, four years in house arrest on a misdemeanor. You know, so that's how the scheming of Chevron and its control over the prosecutorial machinery, at least in New York, um, to go after me can harm an advocate. And even if ultimately I'm exonerated and I expect to be, um, how do you give me three, four years of my life back? Where's that going to come from? You know, so this is designed in a broader sense to send a message of intimidation um, to other human rights lawyers, other earth defenders, other water protectors, the people, you know, who fought and protested at Standing Rock and who are up in Minnesota now at the Line 3 pipeline. I mean, this industry does not want people like us doing this work, which is so critical to saving our earth and to saving the planet. They don't want us doing this work. So they continually try to criminalize it and have people arrested. I'm an extreme example, but there's many other examples. But this has to sort of be stopped. And, you know, this is all wouldn't be happening, by the way, had the Federalist Society and the Koch brothers funding network, which is Koch brothers, a big fossil fuel family in the United States that have poured billions of dollars into various organizations to try to control the judiciary. You know, if they hadn't done that, if they hadn't placed, you know, these pro-corporate right-wing activist judges on our federal courts, this would not be happening. So we all need to pay attention, I think more attention to the composition of our courts and to create processes that ensure judges are neutral and don't bring biases into the courtroom like Judge Kaplan has. Again, he's a former tobacco lawyer who went after me from day one. Like he was angry that I had just spent a bunch of years helping people down in Ecuador, infuriated him. So we need to pay attention to the judiciary, serious attention to the judiciary. Stephen, can you um, give people some background on the case you won? Because obviously the reason this is happening is because, like you mentioned, they're making an example of you. They're attacking you for holding them accountable. And they're attacking you for holding them accountable in this pollution case in Ecuador. So can you give our listeners and viewers some background on, you know, what did Chevron do in Ecuador? And what exactly was the lawsuit that you participated in? in that ended up being successful and winning against Chevron. Well, thank you, Rania. I mean, you know, what, what, what Chevron did in Ecuador, and by the way, Texaco did this, another American oil company. The reason we say Chevron is because Chevron bought Texaco in 2001, and they are now responsible for this, and they're defending it. Mm. But Chevron's predecessor company, Texaco, basically played God in Ecuador. They went in there in the Amazon in the 1960s and they made a decision to drill in a certain way that resulted in the deliberate discharge of literally billions of gallons of cancer-causing oil waste into the waterways, streams, rivers, um, soils, air of this formerly pristine ecosystem that was home to five indigenous nations. So over time, they created what is essentially a mass industrial poisoning. 
I call it ecocide. I don't know if y'all are paying attention to this development of a, a fifth atrocity crime, ecocide, which would exist if it, if it becomes law alongside genocide or crimes against humanity, where you basically deliberately engage in environmental practices that are so destructive, they really remove the conditions necessary for the maintenance of human life and animal life. And that's what Chevron did in Ecuador by deliberately discharging this waste to save a couple of dollars a barrel. I mean, it was just unbelievable that they did this. And when I first went down there in the early 1990s with the delegation, I was a young lawyer. I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, it was like a, seeing an apocalyptic nightmare. I mean, there was oil all along these dirt roads because they would take oil out of the pits to, and just dump it as a way to keep the dust down. They built these waste pits and they put pipes in the sides so they could, um, you know, run the flow or the overflow of the oil waste into streams and rivers. And there's like villages like, you know, a kilometer away that are drinking out of the streams and, and rivers, you know, not even telling them what they're doing. I mean, there were times when some of the indigenous leaders would tell me stories about how they would confront the, the engineers for Chevron. And they'd say, what do you, you know, what's up? Like, what's this black stuff in the rivers? And they would say, oh, it's no big deal. It's like milk, it has vitamins, it's, it's good for you. And, you know, I've heard that story enough times that, that this is like what the Texaco engineers told the people when they were questioned about these awful, horrific practices. And, you know, doing this day after day, year after year for 25 years, essentially destroyed a 1500 square mile area of the Amazon. The impact on the indigenous groups is greatest because you know, when the forest can no longer sustain life, and let me be clear, these groups were prosperous. They were rich. I mean, they had no money, but they were rich. I mean, get your arms around that. They had everything they needed. They had clean water, abundant food, fish, animals, you know, shelter, um, freedom. Uh, they had great cultures, rich cultures, highly sophisticated guardians of the forest, which by the way, benefits all of humanity. Um, we all rely on these people and they basically had their lifestyles destroyed, <clears throat> lifestyles that they had existed for millennia destroyed in a few short years because of Chevron. And it's, it's sickening to observe with your own eyes, which I've done over 200 times that I've been down there. Every time I go, it gets worse. There's no, virtually no medical care. People are dying of cancer without even being treated. I mean, you see tumors the size of basketballs in people's bodies sometimes. I mean, it's just awful. And a lot of people I know have passed away, a lot of witnesses um, in our trial which, in Ecuador, which took place in, you know, from 2003 to 2011 have since passed without receiving even a dollar of compensation. You know, we won the case in 2013. I mean, where's the money? I mean, they've spent the money on 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers to attack us and attack me rather than to compensate the people that they poisoned and to pay for a cleanup in such a way that lives can be saved and indigenous nations can be maintained so they don't end up extinct, which is a real danger right now. So, you know, it's called the Amazon Chernobyl. It's probably the world's worst oil-related disaster. Chevron thought it could get away with it. It's in an isolated part of the world. 
Um, but if you go down there today, you still see these waste pits. They're going to exist for centuries, if not millennia, unless they're cleaned up. And they continue to create more and more destruction and harm and pollution by leaching into soils and groundwater and rivers and streams every single day, including today. And then, you know, I'm curious, you had mentioned when you were talking about the issue with the judiciary and other people like you uh, also being persecuted. Can you give some examples? I, I mean, I know you said yours is kind of the most high profile case and the most extreme, but what are you, you referring to when you say other human rights activists and lawyers uh, are dealing with these kinds of repercussions in other ways? Sure. Well, there's there's several things happening and I'll name three of them quickly. You know, one is the use of the RICO statute, which is the racketeering statute that was passed by the U.S. Congress in the 1960s to target the mafia. OK, corporations are now using that in civil cases to try to criminalize activism. For example, all the protesters at the Standing Rock protest, they are suing various environmental groups and individuals claiming they were part of some criminal conspiracy to deprive the pipeline company of the right to build its pipeline. Okay, so they're basically taking protest, indigenous peoples protecting their lands and trying to make it into a criminal conspiracy to deprive the corporation of the right to make profits from a planet destroying pipeline. Okay, and then they, they take this case into court and to have to defend it means all the people who are protesting, instead of protesting, have to then go find lawyers and find money to pay lawyers to defend themselves. And the purpose of these lawsuits is not even to win. I mean, most civil lawsuits, the purpose is to get compensation for some harm caused. The purpose of these lawsuits is just to harass and silence First Amendment protected free speech, to block activists from holding the fossil fuel industry accountable. This happened to Greenpeace in Canada, um, where Greenpeace was organizing a campaign to save the forests, some of the forests up in Canada, and a company that was cutting down trees sued them under RICO. Wow. You know, and tied up Greenpeace for three, four years with massive legal expenses, you know, just to deal with it. And the judges don't understand it. I mean, the judges should just boot these cases out and say, I see what this is. This is actually not a legitimate case. It's the SLAP lawsuit. SLAP stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation, which is an academic name put on these harassment lawsuits, which is essentially what they are. They're not brought for purposes of the merits of the claim. They're brought to harass. You know, and a final example is ALEC, which is this fossil fuel industry funded organization that drafts legislation for state legislatures in the United States. You know, there's 50 states and they all have their own little Congress and they they've been pushing this law to for enhanced punishments for protesters who protest at oil installations, pipelines, refineries, um, that type of thing, wells. The idea is if you go protest at a Walmart, you know, you get, first of all, protest is legal in the United States, but <laughs> say you do something illegal or they charge you with some sort of nuisance, you get one sentence. If you do it at an oil installation, you get that sentence times 10 because they're trying to define all oil installations as critical infrastructure for national security. Think about it. <laughs> infrastructure for national security. 
That's the infrastructure that's destroying our national security. Planet, you know. So, but the power of this industry, you know, you see this in my case. You see it in these these laws being passed. They've been passed now in 11 states. This is serious. You see it in the attacks, the legal attacks on the Standing Rock protesters. You see it in what's happening in northern Minnesota at the Line 3 site where Enbridge, the Canadian company building that pipeline, is actually paying public police to arrest protesters. They they put a million dollars into the local police force so they can pay the cops, the, the cops that we pay as taxpayers, to go out and arrest protesters. And you see, this is another thing you see is that the fossil fuel industry more and more is being able to take over and privatize normally public functions of government. In my case, prosecuting me, depriving me of my liberty. In the case of the Line 3 protesters, funding the police to attack them. Funding public police. These are not Pinkerton cops. These are not private cops. These are public cops that they pay. So uh, this is a lesser known aspect of your case, but it's, it's one I actually was following before I knew you were being pursued in this manner by Chevron. And I, I'm a bit of a film geek, so I'd like to raise that the film Crude about all of this pollution in 2009. The director of that film, Joe Berlinger, was actually ordered to turn over 500 hours, well, 600 hours to start, by Judge Kaplan. And then uh, the Second Circuit, I understand, narrowed it down to 500 hours of outtakes being turned over and claiming that he couldn't assert journalistic privilege because they didn't feel he was sufficiently independent from you and the other people who were pursuing justice in this case. And I, so I'd like to get your reaction. I mean, another aspect of this where clearly the First Amendment is under assault by this case. Uh, Evidently, there was nothing that this film director could do. Um, And in my view, he was acting as a journalist and shouldn't have had to turn over any of his materials. Well, I agree with that completely. I mean, you know, that's kind of a little known aspect of the long, interesting history of this 28-year-old case, but um, Joe Berlinger made a very good film back in, it was released in 2009 called Crude, which documented a couple years of our litigation in Ecuador. Um, Chevron looked terrible in the film based on all the pollution he documented. Um, When Chevron lost the case in Ecuador and tried to undermine and demonize me, Um, by suing me here in the United States, they also sued Joe to get all of his outtakes on the theory that he captured me engaging in some sort of untoward act or something. And Joe fought it uh, to a degree, um, but ultimately Kaplan ordered Joe to turn over hundreds of hours of outtakes, which to me is a complete assault on artistic freedom and the autonomy of artists, filmmakers in our country. Um, But again, it illustrates the power of Chevron and the fossil fuel industry. Unfortunately, the appellate court upheld Judge Kaplan in this decision on the theory that Joe wasn't independent of me, which is a complete fiction. Joe is the most independent filmmaker you could possibly meet. Um, But they tried to claim that he was, you know, working alongside me and it was really my film. And it obviously was not. 
Um, actually, the film was even critical of me in some respects, but like the idea that they needed to create some fiction and able to, so they could legally justify, you know, what in my view is a complete assault on, on artistic freedom and creative freedom in this country. And then I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'd like to ask you to become a subscriber of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. You can become a subscriber by going to rockfin.com slash unauthorized dis, rockfin.com slash unauthorized D-I-S. And if you do not want to become a subscriber to our Rockfin channel, you could also go and become a patron at patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure, another way to support us. So thank you and we wish you all the best. And uh, another thing I'll ask about is the trial. Uh, I I saw uh, in, in looking back on your case that Preska, and and this also happened during a pandemic, prevented the public from being able to observe your trial by basically mm -hmm. making it impossible for anyone to have Zoom access or some kind of video ability to observe your trial. I mean, your comment on the way in which Preska has made it impossible for the public to scrutinize what has gone on in your case? Well, first of all, let me say, and I really want to emphasize this, I believe in the law and I am a rule of law person. I mean, Chevron's tried to portray me as someone who disobeys court orders. I mean, Chevron is operating outside the law um, by attacking me and by prosecuting me. So I'm a rule of law guy. And, and again, we expect to prevail ultimately on appeal. But, you know, the sad part is I'm stuck in this situation, which was their whole plan all along. It's like they win no matter what. Even if we win the appeal, they got me locked up for at least two years and probably longer. Um, Judge Presco was part and parcel of this plan. I mean, you know, remember, I was charged by Judge Kaplan, who's the tobacco judge. Kaplan has investments in Chevron that he never disclosed. We know this from his financial disclosure forms. He won't reveal the details of them. His charges against me for disobey, supposedly disobeying court orders, I never disobeyed a court order, I was litigating a court order, um, were rejected by the federal prosecutor. He appoints a private Chevron, a private law firm to prosecute me, doesn't, doesn't tell me or anyone that Chevron's a client. We find that out ourselves. He then appoints Preska, Judge Loretta Preska, to preside over my contempt case, which violates local rules requiring random assignment of cases. So this has all been concocted to engineer a conviction without a jury. I'm basically being charged by a Chevron judge. I'm being, the case is being presided over by a Chevron link judge. Preska is a leader of the Federalist Society. Chevron funds the Federalist Society. And I'm being prosecuted by Rita Glavin, who, by the way, sits on a committee with Judge Preska from the on, on, uh, from Fordham Law School, an alumni committee. And Glavin works at Seward and Kissel Chevron Law Firm. So naturally, Judge Preska wanted to prevent scrutiny of this attempt at a trial, really a show trial designed to put a veneer of due process over what is essentially a completely cooked pre-cooked process. Um, and she, you know, denied Zoom access. She tried to limit the number of people who could watch. Um, she 
you know, there was a trial monitoring committee headed by a very prestigious former U.S. ambassador, Stephen Rapp, who that formed to monitor my trial. She wouldn't guarantee them seats in the courtroom. I mean, they've been monitoring trials all over the world. They have never once been denied access or guaranteed seats in a courtroom by a judge. So she engaged in, again, very unusual practices that were designed to limit public scrutiny of this very unfair process. Ultimately, there was a fair amount of scrutiny because tons of people showed up and, you know, we publicized everything that had happened, including her reading the newspaper during the trial and preventing me from testifying on my own behalf and explaining my defense. But, you know, I think very few people who witnessed any portion of that trial came away thinking it was anything other than a kangaroo court. You know, Stephen, your case, um, ha it, it has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, I mean, I've seen it. Um, I've seen, I think, every leftist media outlet, every alternative media outlet has covered your case, and a lot of international outlets have. But, you know, there's been this ongoing uh, attempt to really shame the New York Times because they have yet to cover this case. And as you've told me before, uh, you're, you're, you live like a 30-minute walk away from the offices of the New York Times where you've been under house arrest, and they haven't bothered to come and interview you. So my question for you is, you know, where has the media been with your case? And why do you think outlets like the New York Times have maintained a kind of silence around it? Well, you know, the media in the United States is, is part of a pretty complex ecosystem. Let's just put that out there. Um, there's huge economic dependence on advertisers, particularly in the big media. And the New York Times and Chevron are very, very close. I mean, the reason the New York Times hasn't covered this in my mind is Chevron's a major advertiser. Chevron puts major pressure on the Times not to assign the story. I know for a fact the story has been assigned and worked on and then got killed. Mm -hmm. um, I find it very bizarre the Times covers human rights problems in other countries with a fair amount of ease, especially countries that don't sort of ally themselves with the U.S. government, but a human, major human rights violation in New York City, they ignore. Um, we later learned that Ted Boutros Jr., who's one of Chevron's main lawyers attacking me, works at the Gibson Dunn firm, also represents the New York Times on their media issues. So they're conflicted. And I'm ashamed for the New York Times. I've been a subscriber for decades. I mean, I still read it. It's got some decent journalism in it, but it's very, the paper is getting increasingly dependent, I think, on fear that it would lose ad dollars. And its relationship with Chevron is just an abomination. It violates every journalistic principle imaginable. Chevron is a major advertiser. Chevron actually uses T-Brand, which is the New York Times in-house ad agency to make its ads, to produce its ads. Um, and they're a major client. And they probably tell the Times, you run any kind of sympathetic story on Stephen Donziger and we're going to take our business elsewhere. And it works. I mean, I've seen them kill stories all over the place for years. There's not just the New York Times, Rania. I mean, none of the major networks here have covered this case, not CNN, not MSNBC or any of the others. Um, but I will salute the independent journalists like you guys, like Chris Hedges, James North, um, Darna Noor. Sharon Lerner. I mean, there's so many incredible stories out there now about this situation um, that you're right. I mean, it's out there. 
and people are reading about it and it's all over the place. It's a shame the major media outlets won't cover it though. I have a larger question as we begin to wind down, but I, in the back of my mind, I, I feel like I have to ask this. And I think we know why you wouldn't be allowed to testify in your trial, but can you tell us what Preska's reasoning or the legal reasoning was to block you from testifying? I mean, to me, it just seems a lot like uh, get, there's a work I do. I do a lot of work on whistleblowers. It sounds like basically telling Daniel Ellsberg he couldn't testify on the Pentagon Papers. You know, it, it, well, I think it boggles, the, it, it boggles the mind that a defendant can't speak to why they are engaged in the acts that they're accused of. It boggles the mind if you believe that the U.S. court system in my case should work normally. Yeah, it does boggle the mind. But since everything up to that point has been kind of distorted, this doesn't totally surprise me. I mean, basically, Judge Preska um, ruled that I was not allowed to explain my legal and ethical reasons for appealing Judge Kaplan's order that I turn over my computer. She said the only factual issue at trial was whether I turned it over or not. I mean, why have a trial? Obviously, I didn't turn it over. I appealed it. So she essentially used this very technical ruling that has no applicability to this context as a way to block my testimony. So I couldn't testify. Yeah, I, I know that in... Well, go ahead. I was going to say, sorry, that's going to be a major issue on the appeal. I mean, she wouldn't let me defend myself, and she committed a terrible error under the law. I think it was actually intentional under the politics of what was happening, but legally it was an error to prevent me from testifying. But of course, they don't want my voice in court with the media and all these other people watching. I mean, you know, I would explain my story, and my story makes sense. I believe 99% of the people upon hearing my testimony would actually agree with me. They don't want my story told. They want their story told and they want me to be a foil. And that's what they thought the trial would be. But again, I just don't think it worked out well for them at all. Right. And, you know, all these people, all these players are, although it isn't in the New York Times, it's not on MSNBC, it's not on CNN, there still is favorable media coverage that you are getting. And uh, we left out the what we could call the legal press, the, the court reporters that are attending. Uh, like I, I'll note that while it's, maybe not the most impactful in what it does, you know, courthouse news, this outlet is, is giving you pretty good coverage. Some yeah, of these, yeah. If you want to say anything. Say some of the legal reporters are doing the best coverage of this case. Law 360, courthouse yeah. news, law and crime. I mean, there's a whole trade publications that, that are on this, but you know, the judges read those and they influence other people's coverage. And, you know, I want to salute Adam Klasfeld and Kara Salvatore from Law 360 and, and Jason Grant. I mean, these are reporters that are really conscientious. I mean, they write balanced stories. You know, they're not, I'm not immune to criticism, to be clear. Nobody is. And some of these stories, you know, I don't necessarily look the best, but like they cover the story and they cannot, you know, they cover the fact that there's a lawyer locked up for two years on a misdemeanor, and that's never happened before. Acknowledge it. Why is this happening? You know, and the New York Times can't handle it. So they just ignore the story completely. And it's sad. It's a sad commentary in the New York Times and the state of, you know, kind of the big media in America, unfortunately. So I'll ask about uh, the support that you're getting now. We've got 
organizations like Amnesty International that have stepped forward. You've got human rights organizations, but you also in the last week have a couple senators, uh, Senator Ed Markey and Sheldon Whitehouse, who I know wrote a letter uh, requesting that uh, the, 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 the Justice Department answer some questions. Uh, where Where is the U.S. Justice Department in, in all of this? I mean, this is happening on their watch and they're allowing it to happen in a jurisdiction where the Southern District of New York won't, won't touch this case. Um, I, I, this seems to be like the $64,000 question of, you know, why won't the Justice Department touch this case? Well, they did touch it. Remember, they rejected it for prosecution. Okay, yeah. okay but that was two years ago. The, the problem is Judge Kaplan, I'm gonna plug my computer in, Judge Kaplan um, kept going and appointed this private law firm. And that's where the problem really started because that was, that's where the conflict started. You know, that's when I became, it became, it became clear I was being prosecuted, not by the government, but by Chevron, even though they tried to hide it. So at that point, we, you know, we have asked repeatedly for the U.S. Department of Justice to step back in and take over my prosecution. I happen to think they would dismiss the case if they were to do so. You know, the, the great irony is I'm probably the only lawyer in U.S. history begging the DOJ to prosecute me. I want them to prosecute me because, I, you know, I know that's kind of funny and it is, but like, think about it. I can't deal with Rita Glavin or my lawyers can't. She won't even talk to us about a resolution. I mean, most cases like a misdemeanor, like, oh, let's just let them plead to this, this little violation. And, you know, I mean, this is a massive waste of resources. I mean, millions of dollars have been spent on this case of taxpayer money. You know, they paid Glavin just using the court, the salaries of the judge, all the court clerks, everyone involved, the people monitoring my ankle for two years. I mean, this has to cost millions of dollars. It is a complete abuse of taxpayer resources in the United States to be used for this purpose. So I want the DOJ back in and I want them to look at this. I mean, if they want to prosecute me, they think there's a legit case, let's roll. But like, let me the hell out of detention because no one goes in detention for a misdemeanor. Let's normalize this so I'm treated like every other misdemeanor defendant for starters, okay? Let me be free. And then if you want to have a trial, a real trial with a real prosecutor, not a Chevron prosecutor, a real trial with a real judge who's neutral and isn't, isn't a member of the Chevron Funded Federalist Society, let's have that trial. I actually believe the DOJ won't have that trial because they already looked at the case and decided to dismiss it or, or not to take it up. But the question for the DOJ is deeper, okay? That's the entity that is, exists to protect the rule of law in our country, among other functions. How are you, the United States Department of Justice, letting a corporate prosecution take place in your own court system when you can stop it? So the silence of Merrick Garland, who's our attorney general now in the United States, you know, the unfortunate silence of the Biden administration on this issue is really aggravating to me. And the letter from the senators and there's another letter from six Congress persons is a really good start to raise the profile of this issue such that the Biden administration steps up. I mean, they want to deal with climate issues. You can't have your frontline defenders, your water protectors, your earth defenders, your lawyers who do this work locked up and also claim that you're dealing with climate issues in an effective way. I mean, you can't lock up lawyers 
period, much less in any rule of law country. So, you know, we're locking up our lawyers now in the United States who challenge corporate power successfully. That is a terrifying development that needs to be stopped immediately. We can't let them get away with this. Garland, the DOJ needs to step in, stop this case and take it over. Talk and then professional lawyers can talk to my professional lawyers and see if we can resolve this. So I'm curious, you know, for for those who are uh, as horrified by the details as they should be, because honestly, like your case sounds like a Hollywood crime thriller. Um, well, it sounds it's like the script. It sounds like <laughs> it's Kafkaesque. It is. It is that, but it's also Kafkaesque, and it's it's. Yeah. I mean, so you, I you get in Kafka land, and like everything becomes, you know weird right like you're not even seeing straight because like you, you think you're going to do this and then they do that and then they call it that and you start to think you're crazy you know like like for How example is- like having being prosecuted by a private law firm was crazy to me and then then like seven months later i find out that chevron is a client and they never disclosed it i mean it is kafkaesque and every time I, I, I feel like I'm seeing light at the end of the tunnel, something like that happened. And it's scary. And that's why I'm curious. Can you speak a little bit to um, the kind of personal toll it's taken on you uh, and your family? Because, I mean, okay, I, you've been trapped in your house for like two years. Um, it's easy to like dismiss that or kind of like not even think about what that means because of how crazy the rest of your case is, but I would lose my mind. So how has it been on you personally and on your family dealing with this? Well, first of all, let's start with the fact I have a son who, when I was arrested, was 13. Now he's almost 15. Um, So that's two years out of extremely important period of his development in his life when I couldn't be a normal dad. Um, my partner, Laura Miller, my wife, um, (laughs) let's just say this ankle bracelet I wear 24 seven. I sleep with it. I eat with it. I shower with it. It's never off my ankle. My kids, my son's friends, you know, sometimes he's embarrassed and they, he brings them over and I have to put on pants when I'm wearing shorts. Um, it's just, you know, you know what it is? It's like, it's not that I can't deal with it because obviously I am. It's really just like designed to be a constant 24-7 humiliation of a person. And, you know, I'm hoping it ends soon. This is getting a little ridiculous. Yeah. Like I'm what? Like it- the- this is a stupid question, but I'm just curious. Like, you can't even go to a barber shop. Like, can you? That's not well. Okay. Let me. You can go. To I get out. I do get out for pre-approved um, outings to things like legal meetings and medical mm-hmm. appointments. I can get my hair cut on occasion. Okay. Shop for food, but they're all under very strict approved time limits, mm-hmm. where they monitor my whereabouts with my ankle bracelet. So even when you're out, you're not free. Like you got to rush back, 
you know, you're wearing your ankle brace and you're wondering if anyone's looking at your the bulge on your lower leg. And, yeah. you know, you're never free of the burden of carrying this around. Um, but I also don't want to exaggerate it because I'm not in prison. I am home, um, but I'm just extremely restricted in what I can do. And uh, they also have my passport. And most importantly, I mean, I mean, I can't be a full father and husband. Yeah. I can't go anywhere, but, you know, I can't also have been deprived of my right to work. I mean, I can't work. Yeah. They have my passport. I can't travel. I mean, I do work here to a degree out of my apartment, but, you know, they have so tied me up with these cases. Like I can't even focus on the work that I'm really was put on this earth to do, which was to advance the cause of human rights. You know, right now I'm just trying to survive. Again, that's the design of these slap lawsuits. But let me say this before we go. Yeah. I don't want people to leave this interview being demoralized. I mean, I want to really say two points to that. One is this is happening to me because the communities in Ecuador have been very successful in holding Chevron accountable. They're angry. Okay. So we won the case. This judgment, maybe not by me, but by other lawyers will be enforced against Chevron's assets. I want to be very clear about that. That's distinct from the situation that I'm personally facing. It is connected, but it's also distinct. As for my personal situation, I have great lawyers helping me. I still believe this, there are judges in this country who don't want this kind of thing to be happening and who ultimately will stop this. So I'm very, very hopeful and I am very optimistic that this will end soon. I really am. But for it to really end soon, I need as much support as possible from every quarter of the United States in this world. And I wanna just mention before we go, we have a website, I think you're listing it here, donzigerdefense.com, um, where you can help us. You, know, you can donate money to my defense fund, which is kept in trust in a law firm in Seattle. Um, we pay lawyers and my household expenses since I can't earn a living. And then you can follow me on Twitter at S. Donziger, and also on Instagram, Stephen Donziger, where I give a lot of updates and stuff. We're having this massive global rally on Friday. That's the two-year mark of my house arrest, where we have like 20-plus cities where people are going to stage demonstrations demanding my release and calling for a boycott of Chevron until I get released and, and they pay the Ecuador court judgment so the people of Ecuador can clean up the toxic waste that Chevron left down there in their ancestral land. So, you know, we're hopeful and we want to be very clear that the indigenous peoples of Ecuador won. They beat Chevron in court. The case has been affirmed by six appellate courts. Chevron can't accept defeat. So they are violating the law to lock up and attack the lawyers. And that's really what's happening. The people of Ecuador won. And please don't forget that. That's why this is happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as we as we wind down, just a quick note for people: the kind of notable attorneys that have come to your support. You have Marty Garbus, who is is, is helping, and and assisting. You know, he's much much older at this stage, but uh, you you have people like this who are coming to your support. So that message you're ending with of not being demoralized is good because there are important figures and there are people coming to your house. You know, like Susan Sarandon and all of these other um, activists and actors who are well known, a, a few of them, musicians here and there, like Roger yeah. Waters and people who have been out there who have lent their credibility to you and saying that you should 
she'd walk free. So I think that is well, a reason for hope. Thank you for mentioning that. I mean, I'm, I'm so honored. I mean, that's what he was like, how do you do it? I mean, I do it because of love and solidarity. I know that sounds corny, but like when you get down, you know, maybe some people take a pill. Okay. I need to get people to love me and like, and care. And not about me personally. Yes, about me personally, but also about the broader, broader issues involved. And people like Roger Waters, amazing the support he's given the people of Ecuador for seven years, you know, quietly, people don't even know. Susan Sarandon is an amazing leader, humanitarian, you know, Sting and Trudy Styler and um, so many others, you know, human rights people and Amnesty, Reed Brody was over here the other day, one of the great human rights lawyers, I've admired him for decades. Um, so, Marty Garbus, is, as you know, has represented Nelson Mandela and Cesar Chavez and Daniel Ellsberg. So to have Marty at my side with that history and his understanding of how these cases happen and work is so helpful and encouraging to me. And Ron Kuby also is a great civil rights lawyer who's representing me. And all these people are representing me pro bono, by the way. I mean, people are really stepping up. And it's just, it's just wonderful to to have that kind of support. I mean, honestly, that's what keeps this all moving. Um, all right, so people know uh, it's uh, 6 p.m. in Lebanon, which is the time when uh, she loses her electricity. So Yeah, you guys, I gotta go because my computer's so, also acting so, really crazy. And, but that's also good for us. Um, we were we were ending. We've had you for a little more than 45 minutes and uh, it's been it's been good to talk to you Stephen and everyone knows now how to support you. So, um, so, so we'll sign off and and wish you the best and continue to follow your case and and hope that it it ends with your freedom. Well, thank you and thanks to both of you. Your voices are really important, and I'm glad they're out there. Keep keep pushing your work. It's really really helpful to me and to the world. So, thanks again for allowing me the opportunity.